says. When I was a child, I, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And now that I'm become an adult, I put away childish things. And so that hard work of verification is an adult activity. It is childlike to merely trust. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin and the Bible, a show for Christians who love God's word, care about sound money, and want to learn about the moral case for Bitcoin. Join us as we hold fast to God's word and hodl Bitcoin. Hello, everyone. My name is Simon, and I'm here with my Bitcoin brothers, David and Will. Hey, guys. Hey, Simon. Hey, Simon. We are at the last episode of our first season. I'm excited that we made it to this point, and today we tackle one of the most important issues for Christians concerning Bitcoin trust. Now, before I dive into that issue, I want to just briefly speak to what our next season is going to contain. If you listen to our first couple episodes, you know that we are passionate about God's word. And we made a commitment to all of you that we would take time to go through some of the passages in scripture where God speaks to work, to money, uh, to justice, and to all of the ways in which Bitcoin intersects with Scripture. And we are committing to you that we are going to take our time. We're going to go back to the Bible and dig into each of those issues and draw forward how Bitcoin fits against that paradigm. And we're able to do that now because we've spent the time building the foundation and helping those of you who are new to Bitcoin to understand how Bitcoin functions as money in our culture today, how the technology works, and how Bitcoin is becoming the world's greatest monetary network. Now, for you to get there, we need to deal with an issue first. And for me personally, the largest hindrance to my adoption of Bitcoin, and I know an, an issue for many others, is the issue of trust. And to tackle this challenge, our plan is to first look to the Bible for what God says about truth, trust, and verification. Next, we will have an open and an honest discussion about various areas of concern for those considering Bitcoin, including security and scams and scare tactics. After we address these, we would like to suggest some areas of practical wisdom that you and your family can implement to strengthen your confidence in Bitcoin and your own personal security. Now, this is exciting for me because God's word has an abundance of things to say to us in this realm, particularly when we talk about biblical truth and trust and the process of verification. So I'd love to have David introduce us to a couple of verses that he's prepared for us today. Thanks, Simon. Yeah, when we begin to, to talk about truth, we're, we're talking about the character of God. He reveals himself to Moses in, in Exodus 34 and verse 6, where he says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is his name. This is his character. God is true. Let every man be found a liar, the Apostle Paul says. Jesus Christ himself reveals to his disciples there in the upper room in the night in which he was to be betrayed. He, in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In that same chapter of John, John's gospel in chapter 14 and verse 17, the, the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. So we have the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God is true and refers to himself as true. Jesus says in John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, that the scriptures are the source of ultimate truth, where he says, your word is 
truth. Again, in the mouth of Jesus, uh, the father of lies is Satan, John 8, 44, the, the very antithesis of who God is and God's character. That's why God's people are, are people of truth and integrity, because we emulate our father. In fact, in Revelation 22 and verse 15, the apostle John writes there that those who are excluded from Messiah's kingdom are everyone who loves and practices lying, the scripture tells us. They will be among those who are forever outside the, the kingdom of God. So the issue of truth is, is important. It's who God is and it's who we're called to be as his children. And so we come to a topic like Bitcoin, and yes, how do we know it's true? How can we trust it? How do we verify these things? I'm reminded of Proverbs 23, 23, where Solomon writes, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Now, he's referring, of course, first and foremost, to the truth about how one knows God, how one can be known savingly by God. But I think by application, we can extend that to say that because God is truth, that all truth matters to God. And the very fact here that Solomon says we need to buy truth and not sell it gives you the idea that the truth is, is valuable above all else and that we need to pursue it. We need to get it. We need to get instruction. We need to get understanding. We need to, we need to trade our labor for it, as it were, in order to buy it, right? We, we, we labor, we receive money, we store that labor in money, and then we, and we spend that money for something else. And, and Solomon would say, spend your money, spend your labor in the acquisition of truth. You know, children trust, adults verify. Children trust, adults verify. And in First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and, and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, when I was a child, I, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and now that I've become an adult, I put away childish things. And so the hard work of verification is an adult activity. It is childlike to merely trust. So that's why we're called to trust in Christ with a childlike faith. But we live in this, this crazy world, right? We live in a crazy world where it's hard to know what's true anymore and what isn't. The so-called experts have, have demonstrated repeatedly that they're not to be trusted. Science, medicine, government, banking, corporations. I mean, they've all deceived and have done so regularly. And so we know there's, there's no real truth there. We've got to dig in. We've got to verify. But, but we can't verify everything. So how do we decide what to verify and what not? I mean, at some point, yes, we do have to exercise pure trust. We have to adopt a childlike stance. But here's how I would pursue it. I would say that that, that which is critical, you need to personally verify. So I'm reminded of the Bereans in Acts 17, right? Jesus is the only hope of salvation. That's what he says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation. When Paul brought that message to the people there in Berea, in Asia, the, the scripture tells us that those Bereans were more noble-minded, it says, than the Thessalonians. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. In other words, they were verifying the message of Christ as the risen Messiah. And in because the most critical 
decision that anyone has to make is where do they stand with God eternally? You do need to dig in there and verify. If you were to go to the doctors and he were to give you a serious medical diagnosis, the prudent person would go get a second opinion, right? We would seek to try to verify what we're being told before we submit ourselves to the surgeon's knife or, or some regimen of, of uh, difficult drugs and, and so forth. So again, that's critical. We verify. I would suggest that the quality and the trustworthiness of the money in which we store the fruit of our labor is something of critical value that needs to be verified. Now, we live in a, in a system that we've grown up in, and so we've, from our childhood, we've kind of learned to trust it. We basically uh, know how it works at the interface level, but, but we don't understand anything about what goes on under the hood. We, we merely trust that that's going to work out. And in fact, what we're trusting in is, is an authority figure that has repeatedly proven themselves to, to be unreliable. I mean, it's just fascinating to me. You, you pull a Federal Reserve note out of your wallet and you flip it over on the back and it says, in God we trust. If there's anybody they trust in, it wouldn't be God. And yet that's what they print on our money. We got to do the hard work. We need to, we need to buy truth. And, and there's just no way around this, this project. This is an adult endeavor. And uh, I think what we're going to try to help people with in this episode is, is how to, to begin to go about that process. And, and some will dive much deeper and, and gain much fuller understanding. Others, it'll be a, a more basic or elementary level of understanding, but I think everybody can gain base level of understanding that will be necessary for them to operate in the Bitcoin world. And if I can draw an analogy, again, from the biblical world, when you and I go listen to a sermon on a Sunday morning, our pastor has spent hours of his life, days of his life, reading and studying and often going to the original languages to make sure that he understands exactly what God intended for his people to get out of that passage of scripture. As those of us sitting in the congregation, we have the opportunity to go home that week and behave like Bereans and open up our copy of our Bible in our native tongue, my language being English, and read in English what our pastor said to us. And if necessary, cross-reference and go to other passages in scripture and say, does this match? Is this true? Is this what God intended for me to take from this passage? Is this the original meaning? Some of us have the capacity to go pick up a commentary and read in Hebrew and Greek and make sure that what the pastor said to us from that pulpit is right. Others don't. It doesn't mean that we all have to have that capacity to speak Hebrew and Greek and therefore go back to the original languages and double check our pastor's work. But it does require us to do the work that we are able to do, even as children, to think through and to dialogue what we heard and make sure that we understand it and that we can use it. And that's where I would call us to the same level of responsibility as we learn to embrace Bitcoin as money. You may not have the technical skill set to go look at the core code. You may not be computer savvy enough to do that. If you are, you can because it is an open source code that provides you that level of authenticity and transparency and if you want to trust in someone who has that capacity, there are many people around you who can do the equivalent of opening up an original Greek New Testament and looking at the words to say, is that what it really says or does? But we recognize that not all of you have all of your concerns alleviated. And that's good. That means we can be honest with each other. 
That means we can think about the reality that this is a complex topic with lots of different concerns, and we can address those concerns confidently, knowing that we're going to do the work together to come to God's understanding of what we should do with our money. So there's going to be several concerns here that that we're going to bring up, and, and some of these concerns we've addressed in part, or maybe even in full in a previous episode. If we've addressed them in full in a previous episode, we're going to try to commend that discussion to you to allow you to go back and listen to that full discussion in context. Uh, but some of these concerns are things that we've not expressed before on the episodes, and, and you haven't been prepared for them. You haven't had the foundation yet to be able to understand these concerns. So let me bring up the first one, and we can talk about this. Bitcoin is often referred to as magic internet money. And the first concern that you have is if this money is somehow stored on the internet, is it going to be durable in the face of an internet outage or an electrical blackout, an an EMP, a computer virus? Basically, how can I trust my money if it's stored on the internet? Will, do you want to take a crack at that one? Definitely. I think that is a question that is an intellectual smokescreen. When you stop and you think about the question, what you're really seeing is, hey, I don't really want to understand this and trust it. I'm just going to throw up the smokescreen about it's on the internet. We can't, you know, I can't, can't trust that. But I don't want to equally apply that to the rest of my life. So let's stop and think about it. What happens if the internet completely goes down and there's computer viruses or EMPs that wipe everything out? Is it possible that Bitcoin was completely destroyed? You could draw some dire scenario where every single node gets wiped out and deleted completely and no one has a backup and everyone who knows anything about everything is shot and killed and it's this horrible scenario. But along with that, everything else is offline. The healthcare system stops working. The natural gas pipelines stop working, right? Your money is going to be the least of your concerns when the entire world grinds to a halt. Not to mention the fact that your money is all digital anyway and stored on the internet. Exactly. Everything about the current banking system is digital. The cash that you probably don't even have in your wallet, when you turn it into the bank, the digital numbers that appear in your account don't actually equate to the cash you gave them. It's long gone. It's given out to somebody else. They try not to hold it because it's a liability and they don't want to get robbed for the the few bills that they do hold. You are in a digital system. It's already here. It's, it's been here for decades. It's not getting wiped out by EMPs and viruses and things today because there are a lot of people who pour their blood, sweat, and tears into protecting these networks. Right? Digital things are not going away. The internet is, is not going back into Pandora's box. So yes, you can trust something that's stored on the internet because something stored on the internet is far more resilient and durable than something that's analog in the quote-unquote real world. I can easily destroy something that is located and constrained in one physical location. How can you destroy an idea? That's what the internet really is. It's the transmission of ideas. And Will, you've shared this with us before, and and this was something I needed to hear. We've mentioned it on previous episodes, but for the sake of those who haven't heard everything, the entire Bitcoin ledger can be stored on a computer in around 400 gigabytes worth of space. If all of the Bitcoin nodes across the entire world all lost that except for one, you could regenerate and restart the entire system without any loss of information. Nobody's money getting lost simply from that one copy. Yeah, you could, you could prove verifiably that every transaction recorded has occurred. 
you can't prove that you do have every transaction that might have occurred. So I can't prove that there were no subsequent blocks of transactions, but I can prove that up to whatever block number we're currently on, that is all legitimate and is the true history of the state of, of the Bitcoin network. So yes, assuming that my node is up to date, which it's always running and it is always up to date, and it cross-references with eight other peers on the network to make sure that it's up to date at all times, assuming that just my node survives, then I will charge exorbitant rates to for everyone else to access the network and, and reduplicate it again. <laughs> and again, that gives me great confidence. It's it's protected. It's redundantly duplicated in all of those nodes. So let's draw the local scenario. This is not a global flood. This is a local flood. A little biblical joke for all of you out there. <laughs> what happens if my city goes down electrically? And therefore, I don't have internet for a couple of hours, maybe even a couple of days, right? Some of you who live in parts of the country where a blizzard could knock out your internet for a couple Or a hurricane. Or a hurricane. <laughs> so for you, for a couple of days, you can't do anything on the Bitcoin network. The network across the world continues cooking on without you. We know that already. But if you got desperate right? And you really needed to make a transaction and you really needed to do something of substance. Is it possible to connect a battery power or solar generator up and talk to some satellite somewhere and just get some information onto the network? Absolutely. People all over the world run completely off the grid, redundant power system, Bitcoin nodes right? powered by solar with battery backups that receive their updates from the network via satellite, not via a local network connection. And what that enables is that even if the grid goes down, as long as the satellites in the sky haven't all crashed, you can keep up to date with what's going on the network. And if you want to transmit a transaction, then you can sign it on with your phone or however you sign transactions, and you could transmit that via ham radio. You could transmit that via sneaker net, stick it on a USB drive and, and hoof it somewhere that, that still does have connectivity. Right? Or if the mail's service is still working, you could print out a QR code of a signed transaction and drop it into a letter and mail it. Right? I mean, you're not constrained by anything other than your own ingenuity. Indeed. Good. All right, so that's the first one. Second one is an objection that we've spoken about before. We actually addressed this one on episode five. It's, is Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme? So I'm going to commend... Uh, those of you who haven't yet heard episode five, go back and listen to that in its full context. I think you'll come away with the confidence that no, in fact, Bitcoin is not indeed a Ponzi scheme that you're going to get left holding the bag of all of these digital Bitcoins that nobody in turn wants to buy from you. Our third objection is Bitcoin something that can be hacked. And again, we did address this on episode four. We talked about Bitcoin as technology and we talked about the reality that the Bitcoin network itself has never been hacked. It is true, and you'll read about this, that individual exchanges have been hacked. And, and those of us who may not have been smart enough yet, if you stored your Bitcoin on an exchange and you didn't hold it in a wallet where you held the, the private keys, then yes, if that exchange were to be hacked, then, then you were to lose that. And just to, to clarify, what would it look like if the Bitcoin network were hacked? So the Bitcoin network being hacked would look like someone is moving coins when they don't have the signatures to do so. Right? So the protocol is designed to reject any such malicious activity. So that just can't happen. Another hack would be if someone was able to, to fabricate money. Right? So if they were able to counterfeit a Bitcoin. 
Every time you send a transaction, the entire provenance of, of that amount of Bitcoin can be traced all the way back to its block reward when it was initially mined. So if that could be circumvented and someone could create new currency, but the network checks and makes sure that that doesn't happen. So if I go in and I adjust my balance to try to spend Bitcoin I don't have, the network goes, no, 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 you don't. I can trace the history. I know that that wasn't lawfully issued in comparison to fiat money, which is counterfeited all the time. Fiat money is constantly being hacked, right? Every time someone goes and spends a $20 bill that, that wasn't issued by the, you know, the Fed, they have hacked the, the fiat monetary system. Yeah, it's helpful. Now, I, I'm going to open up a can of worms here. And this has been one of the more common questions that I've heard personally and that we've had emailed to the show in the past couple of weeks. Is Bitcoin susceptible to regulatory pressure by government? And I think as we think about this, we probably need to subdivide it a little bit because that's a broad question. So we can think about it in a couple of categories. The first category being, what if my government basically made it illegal for me to buy or sell? Bitcoin. So basically they cut off the exchanges from exchanging the currency of my local jurisdiction for Bitcoin. The second category would be, what if they basically made it illegal to hold Bitcoin? And the third category would be, what if they just simply taxed it, made it basically very onerous to hold Bitcoin by taxing it heavier than it has been currently. So let's, let's talk a little bit about those three separate categories there. So if the government makes Bitcoin illegal in your jurisdiction, that's not ground that has not been tread before. Bitcoin is illegal in many countries around the world. There are exchanges that exist to facilitate transactions off network between participants. So local Bitcoins is an exchange that has seen a lot of use in countries where Bitcoin's usage is outlawed, but where the people desperately need a stable, reliable store of value. BISC, B-I-S-Q is another exchange where you can buy and sell Bitcoin without KYC information. So if you need to, to buy kind of off the record and you are excluded from the financial system or you just don't want the government knowing what you've bought, that's, a, that's another alternative that people use in countries that, that don't have favorable regulation. So no, even if a government bans it, as long as they have not banned all internet access, you're good. And it, I'll ask it this way as well. Is it possible if that scenario happened that you could, in some sense, move your money from the traditional through the traditional banking system, open up a bank account in another country, and then buy Bitcoin in that country using the exchange in that particular country? You absolutely could. You could also go on vacation to another country and use a Bitcoin ATM while you're in country. Pay cash, buy Bitcoin, no KYC information, no one's any the wiser. And because it's digital... As long as you have your recovery phrase, you can fly back into your country and no one's the wiser. That's one of the vulnerabilities with gold, right? So the U.S. government, I think it was 1934, confiscated private ownership of gold and then proceeded to mark it all up and, and in effect deflate the currency um, by, I can't remember what it was, 66% or something like that. So the problem was is gold is difficult to move across borders. Bitcoin moves easily across borders because it's a, it's a seed word in your head or scratched down on the margin of a book or whatever. And so if a government became that aggressive to, to go after your Bitcoin that way, you would have the ability to move it offshore if necessary. Something with a, with a, a tangible physical asset you just can't do. 
if they come after your, your property, your real property, you're stuck. There's nothing you can do about it. Bitcoin that you have custody over is offshore already. Bitcoin is your offshore account, right? So I think it was Barack Obama who talked about Bitcoin being the equivalent of a Swiss bank account in your back pocket. And he said that pejoratively, like, oh, we wouldn't want our citizens to have access to that. But that's what it is. It's the ability for the average person to have access to the same kind of uh, luxurious protections that the rich have been afforded. So let's zero in on the question of what if the government tried to even make it illegal to hold Bitcoin, not just to buy and sell it, but just to hold it. And I think one of the first questions we have to address is, can the government make it illegal to own a number? Right? Because physically your, your 24 seed words, your private key, your 24 words or your 12 words are not anything more than just a, a computer number. Right. So let's say hypothetically that they completely disregard the law and decide that they are going to make the ownership and the memorization of 12 or 24 words illegal. Then what? They're going to come into your house and, and tell you, give it to me. No, I don't want to. What are they going to do? For the first time in human history, we have an asset that's unconfiscatable. If you give it to the government, it's because you wanted to give it to the government. Even in a, in a draconian state where they torture you, you giving up your recovery words is volitional. You choose to do that when the level of pain that they force upon you is greater than you, can, you decide that you can bear. But no one can take it from you unless you decide to give it to them. So unlike everything else in life, this is the only thing that they, they only property they can't take from you. Your Bitcoin and your faith are the only thing that, that the government can't take from you. Indeed. And to draw that contrast a little further, imagine how easy it would be for the government to take any other form of asset from you. We have civil asset forfeiture laws going on all the time where the government, a police agency, whatever, pulls you over and, and under mere suspicion, they confiscate your automobile, the contents, uh, cash you may have in your wallet or whatever. And then it's up to you to then prove that you have it lawfully and legitimately. Yeah, if you have $20,000 cash in your car, they'll confiscate it and they'll force you to prove that you weren't going to use it to buy drugs. How can I prove the negative? I can't prove I wasn't going to do something. Well, let's tackle the, the third one. And we come to these questions with a, a sober uh, attitude. We recognize that Christians, of all people, should be seeking God's will in whether or not they should be submitting themselves to the governing authorities. And obviously God's word has information for us about submitting to our government. And one of those areas is where we are commanded to pay taxes. So obviously the decision about whether or not to comply with a government mandate to pay taxes, if the government were to increase them substantially on either selling or even on the unrealized capital gains of simply holding an asset that has matured in value would be a difficult decision for any believer to encounter. So we are not prescribing a solution that will work for every citizen in every country in every governmental structure on the face of this planet for the rest of human history. What we're suggesting for you today are some principles that you can apply as you navigate through the question of excessive taxation. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you guys, but I'll introduce it with the concept of saying, 
uh, as we think about owning property, the question of what is property rights and what the government has the, the legal opportunity to tax is, is, a, is a question that really begs a fuller discussion about whether individual property rights and freedom of property is a biblical concept that we should be protecting and guarding and not in any way ceding to a government and whether or not government is something that inherently owns our property, whether it be land or any f other form of asset, and that we are in any sense required by scripture to submit to their ownership of that particular property or asset. Right. Is Romans 13 carte blanche for any government anywhere at any time to do anything they want and Christians are completely powerless to, to resist it because we've been commanded to submit to whatever it is that they decree at the time. Yes, you, you, go, to the, you go to the prophets. We talked about this two episodes ago, I think, in Isaiah 65, where the prophet is, is looking forward and he says, I'll, in verse 17, I'll create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And then he goes on and, and he talks about building houses and inhabiting them and planting vineyards and eating their fruit and, and you will not build and another inhabit, you will not plant and another eat and so forth. So the idea that, that there in the eternal state, there will be property rights because they are fundamental to what it means to be human. Should the government of any country become so draconian that, that they begin to tax away the livelihood of their citizens, for the first time in history, citizens have the ability to peacefully resist that. Normally, when taxation gets out of control, there's a revolution. People, the pitchforks come out. We dump the tea in the harbor. We dump the tea in the harbor. We get out Madame Guillotine or whatever it is, and it's bloody and it's, and it's awful. There is now a peaceful alternative. In other words, capital can be moved from one tax jurisdiction to another. And if one country becomes oppressive in that way, then other locations will see the opportunity and invite those to come and bring their capital with them. And in a sense, the free market will balance out the tax rates around the world so that there is a much fairer representation. Now, if you think all the governments of the world are all going to get together and and do it. I mean, that's another scenario. I guess we could try to game and play that. But but basic game theory tells you that should the United States seek to aggressively tax Bitcoin, what will happen is Bitcoin will move. You can't move your house. Property taxes continue to go up. They will likely continue to go up. Why? Because the governments have made promises to the public service sector in terms of retirements and benefits and so forth, that they cannot possibly meet without continuing to increase property taxes. The problem becomes is how do you pick up your house and move it? So Simon, I think the original question was, is Bitcoin susceptible to regulatory pressure by government? But I think really the bigger question is, is government susceptible to pressure by Bitcoin? And I think what, what you'll find out is, as David pointed out, Bitcoin frees capital to flow to wherever it's treated best. Governments aren't completely stupid. They're aware of that and they will observe that 
And so the first government that screws up and tries to, to aggressively go after it, they're going to find out that they made a huge mistake. And the other countries will learn from that. And you'll see, I mean, there was a, a recent example of Hungary that just passed m massive tax cuts for, for capital gains from Bitcoin. Why? Because it's game theory. They want the prosperity to flow to them because they want ultimately to collect tax revenue. But if they can be alluring enough that Bitcoiners will move to their jurisdiction, then they win. So I would expect an initial push where there are some governments who think, oh man, maybe we can control this, maybe we can stop this, we can squeeze those Bitcoiners and, and get some of their gains from them. But that will quickly turn into, hey, uh, we'd love to have you come live here. This would be a great place for you to come and, and bring your capital. And we saw that with El Salvador, that along with them making Bitcoin legal tender, they added a provision that if you invest couple Bitcoin worth of, of, of investment into the economy there. So go buy a house, buy cars, whatever, do commerce in El Salvador. They would grant you permanent residency. Why? Because they're courting capital. They want it to come and, and help build up their economies. Indeed. And that, that gives us confidence and, and encouragement, right? We want to see people protected. And we believe that Bitcoin provides protection for the individual, their freedom, is protected because they own something that the government cannot take away from them. So another question that comes up, and this is one we did address uh, pretty well, I would believe, in uh, episode four, is if I'm not tech savvy, is it likely that I will lose or corrupt my own Bitcoin? And as Will shared with us in that episode, it is possible for an individual to, to be careless and to lose their private key or to share it with somebody who they should not have shared it with. So we don't want that to be you, and we would like to encourage you to learn the simple best practices. And we'll, we'll get into some application steps that you can take at the end of this episode to help yourself get to that level of, of trust in whatever the, the tool is that you're using to secure your particular asset. So here's an, an interesting question that comes up, and I know this is something that, again, arises out of uncertainty primarily because this is new and it's digital. But the question is, if it's just software... Why can't a group of individuals overwrite the code or inflate the supply or even confiscate my portion of it, just basically siphon out my Bitcoin and take it away from me? Because Bitcoin is a network and it's a network of greedy participants who all are protecting their own incentives, the safeguards are put in place such that, let's say, a... Someone comes into the network and says, hey, I have given myself a few extra Bitcoin. I'm sure no one else will mind, right? Well, every other node is going to say, no, man, screw you. You're inflating the supply. You're devaluing my Bitcoin. I don't recognize that. That doesn't meet the rules we agreed upon. Get out of here. Let's say a miner tries to, to mine an invalid block. Not only is the network going to reject it, but they just wasted all of that energy that went into the computing power to, to hash that block. So this, there's no point for them to try. Why, when they could be earning transaction fees and a block reward by, by being honest, would they waste their time doing something that isn't going to do anything if they, if they mine malicious blocks that nodes are going to say, get out of here, I don't know what that is. So if someone tries to overwrite the code, what happens if someone comes into your church 
and they say, hey, look, I, I brought my Bible and you look at it and it's just absolute garbage, right? They've, they've changed the books of the Bible. They've tried to insert whatever the they Thomas want. Thomas Jefferson version. Exactly. The rest of the church is going to say, you're a heretic. Get out of here, right? We know what the word of God is. This is not it. So you could change a piece of code somewhere and all you've done is kicked yourself off the Bitcoin network, right? So to if you wanted to affect an actual change, you would need to inject malicious code into the Bitcoin core software. And then you would need to hope that no one caught that change through all of the audits that it goes through prior to release. And that when it's released, that enough people on the network will download it and run your corrupted version of the software prior to it being discovered for it to, to actually have done anything. And even if you did that, the moment that it was realized that something had happened, Everybody is incentivized to say, hey, well, that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened. So let's get a fixed version of the software that doesn't have this exploit that allowed them to do that. And, and let's move forward. And if, if the change they made violated the rules of the network, the network would no longer recognize the transaction that had occurred. And once again, they're back to square one. And that ties into our next question, which we also did address in episode three, is should we be trusting in these miners? Aren't they these greedy speculators out there just randomly guessing numbers with their computer, hoping to, to make a lottery hit and, and win a little bit of Bitcoin? Aren't they incentivized in some way to basically work the system and steal from us? And and the answer is no, right? We, we talked about this in episode three, that the mining system is designed to incentivize accuracy and security and validity. And those who don't play by those rules are not incentivized because they don't get the rewards. So the, the system is designed to reward those who play by the protocol, by the rules, and, and thereby incentivize them to maintain the security of the money that we are putting into the network. And and the larger the network becomes and the more value that flows into it and the more transaction fees are, are attached to those transactions for those miners, the more likely it is that they will stay in their their lane and do what they're supposed to do. And the less likely it is that anyone is going to be either incentivized or powerful enough to take over the network and steal from the network. There was a concern that I had heard expressed when 50% or that was a number that was thrown around or so of the mining power resided in China. The way it was expressed to me is, well, what if the Chinese government co-ops these miners and, you know, that, that much hashing power is there in China that, that maybe they're going to turn turn the tables here and, and profit from it somehow. And, and it's amazing to me what we just observed beginning in May, right? The Chinese government kind of playing back into an earlier question here, the Chinese government cracked down on mining. They didn't like the competition with their own digital currency that they're seeking to roll out. And what did we what did we observe? We observed a decrease in hashing power for a period of time, right? But but blocks continued to be mined and bitcoins continued to be created. The network chugged along. One bitcoin is one bitcoin. And over a matter of what has it been, 90 days or so, and the hashing power is not all the way back yet, but it's definitely, if, if you look at the trend lines, right, it's well on its way back. And it has come back online again in different geographical locations. In fact, the United States now has a, has a, a better position in terms of mining power and, and the use of stranded energy and some of those sorts of things. So, so that was game theory that we've talked about just being played out in front of our eyes. We know what happens when a government tries to, to eliminate, at least on the mining side, we know what happens. 
it moves. And in 2017, with the block size wars, the miners did try to get together and say, hey, let's increase the size of the blocks of the Bitcoin network because then we can collect more transaction fees from each block. And there was this existential crisis where the network and the participants of the network were trying to figure out, okay, what are miners? Are miners the overlords of the network? Well, no, it turns out they're the slaves of the network, right? They tried to exert that control and the rest of the participants of the network said, no, that would be detrimental to the decentralization of Bitcoin. We won't have it. And it failed. And it it forked off into Bitcoin Cash, which is irrelevant now. And the free market stomped that idea and showed that, no, the decentralization of the network was more important. So even in an instance where the miners did try to do something shifty, right? You come for the king, you better not miss. They tried it once and it didn't work. That game's over. That book is closed. It's not happening. The miners aren't going to steal Bitcoin. Even if they wanted to, they can't because you didn't sign the transaction. So if they tried to give themselves your Bitcoin, the rest of the network is going to invalidate that regardless because they don't have the the keys to, to sign that transaction. But no matter what else they try to do, the nodes on the network define what is and what is not allowed. And so a miner, a worker is worthy of his wages. They work hard to provide the security for the network. And in return, they're compensated for that work. And that prepares us perfectly for the next question, which is if someone is looking ahead at the future and saying, well, yeah, right to now today, Bitcoin miners are really incentivized to keep doing what they're doing because they're both getting Bitcoin block rewards and transaction fees. What happens when the block rewards decrease in the next couple of years or even at the end of the network when they entirely go away? Won't that take away all the incentive for them to basically do their work and aren't they just going to shut down their computers and go find something else to do and suddenly we have no way to continue using the network? I think there's a, probably a bit of a misunderstanding that a lot of people have in terms of when the block rewards end. So people talk about, oh, the, you know, the last blocks that will have block rewards will be mined in around the year 2140. But long before that, the blocks will have essentially no block reward because it's being phased out. It cuts in half every four years. Right. So what is it now? Six and a, six and a quarter six every and 10 a quarter minutes. Every 10 minutes. And All the way back from 50 every 10 minutes at the launch of the network. Right, so is it 2024, it drops to three and an eighth or whatever it is. Yes, so every four years it cuts in half, we're getting asymptotically closer to zero. And so the only reason it's going to reach zero is when the, the network doesn't divide small enough anymore and we just round it down and say, okay, it's, it's zero now. But that's a really long tail, right? We have a long time to smooth that transition out. It's not like, oh, hey, in 2030, the block rewards are going to stop and we're going to know who knows what happens to the network. 90% of all Bitcoin that ever, will ever be mined will have been mined by the end of this year. So we, we basically know what's going to happen. And let's say that that there's not enough transaction fees to to compensate for the block rewards right now. Okay, so the least efficient miners will go offline and the free market will reach equilibrium and the appropriate security level will be reached, at which point there will be inevitably some new market participant who's found a cheaper source of power or has figured out how to make the hardware to mine cheaper and they'll re-enter the race. And with Moore's Law, we know that the, the mining rigs will get more efficient Every couple of years, we know that they're going to find more efficient uses use of electricity and stranded energy. So there's no reason to not be completely optimistic that mining will not only continue, but it will decentralize. 
So I know there are a lot of, of people who are working on, hey, how can we bring mining into the home? So, hey, what happens if I could take a miner and I could connect my water heater to it and I could be heating my water with the excess waste heat produced by Bitcoin mining? I've been heating my water with an electric water heater anyways, and it's just waste power that's heating it. What if I was doing something productive to generate that heat? There's lots of these initiatives that I think will decentralize mining over the next 50, 100 years that will make it such that, no, these miners will just run forever. Indeed. All right. And our last objection that we're going to hit tonight is the question of volatility. And we've talked about this on a couple of our previous episodes, but the reality is that the price of Bitcoin in US dollars or whatever your local currency is, is volatile. And, and the idea of saving your money and then seeing it all rapidly depreciate away in a matter of days or weeks or months doesn't give many individuals the, the largest amount of confidence. Uh, we've just seen a, a period of time here where Bitcoin has gone from the all-time high of close to 65,000 and dropped almost to 30,000 or just slightly below and has subsequently rebounded in a three-month time period. But there are individuals who are are looking at that and saying, I don't trust that and I don't want to live with that level of volatility personally or on behalf of my organization, my business or my church. So let's think about what are ways that we can properly view the volatility of the Bitcoin price to give ourselves the confidence as to whether or not we should be able to, to withstand that volatility. Well, one of the traditional wisdoms with regard to investing is if you're not sleeping well, reduce your position size. So I would say that as you begin the Bitcoin journey, don't put the rent money there. Don't position yourself to the place where if there is a, a significant drawdown in the U.S. dollar price, that you're going to be in a position where either you're not sleeping well or your need for it and it's not there for you. The problem is, is is that we're assuming the U.S. dollar is fixed and we're, we're measuring Bitcoin against the U.S. dollar when the truth of the matter is one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And it's the U.S. dollar that is moving up and down in admittedly a volatile market. As this new technology comes on stream, there is a fair amount of price volatility to be found in it. But historically, no one who's ever bought and held Bitcoin for four years has ever lost money on it. It's running at an average of 200% a year in terms of, of U.S. dollar price appreciation. So part of it is just what is, your, what is your unit of measure? I think that helps to basically look into it and make an intelligent decision. But, but the other thing I would say is, yeah, Bitcoin is a, is a long-term store of value. It's not something that, that you want to be in and out of. You don't, you don't want to day trade it. I mean, I know there are people who do it but you're just asking to get slaughtered. It's important to remember that volatility can only be measured when you're comparing two things. $1 is $1. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. You don't see volatility until you take dollars and compare them against Bitcoin. And then what you're really seeing with that volatility is you're seeing the double whammy of Bitcoin undergoing price discovery as the first real dematerialized digital money as well as that occurring in the midst of the most unprecedented monetary inflation the world has ever seen. So if you weren't seeing volatility, it would mean Bitcoin wasn't working. Bitcoin is volatile because it's doing what it's designed to do. Bitcoin is designed to go up forever because it's the scarcest money the world has ever seen. So 
it's it's funny because the only people who complain about volatility are people who have really short-sighted time horizons. If you're concerned about next week, next month, I want to buy, I want to buy it low, sell it high, and I'm going to be the next day trader who who flips this thing, you might be concerned about volatility. But then you start looking at it and even for the day traders, volatility is opportunity. But no one who's held Bitcoin for six years is whining about volatility. If there was no volatility, there'd be no upside. Those are the, those are two sides of the same coin. And the conventional wisdom as is expressed is when you're looking at volatility, you're looking at it in too short of a time, zoom out and see the big picture and see what has happened. And I think we've had a, an opportunity to do that this year. I, I recall just seeing a tweet from Michael Saylor today as he reflects back on his decisions as a, as a CEO of a, of a Fortune 500 company to invest a, a majority of that company's balance sheet in Bitcoin last year around this time and subsequently to add to that position over time. And you could absolutely look at him in the middle of May, June, and say that was a poor decision. And he took a fair amount of heat for it in that particular time frame. But here we are in the middle of September, and he's obviously made a good decision when you look at it relative to the other investments that he did not take advantage of in that particular time frame. So as we finish tonight, our part three is, is how do you build the muscle to be able to, to practice the steps that will help you verify to the level of trust and, and truth verification that you as an individual need before you start entrusting your family savings, uh, your individual uh, businesses savings, or your church's savings to Bitcoin. So this is not comprehensive, but here's a, a list of some helpful steps that we would recommend for you to, to begin verifying the trustworthy nature of Bitcoin. The first step we would commend to you is, is have a friend give you a guided tour of the blockchain. Look at it. See how Bitcoin transactions are stored, validated, and secured. Uh, seeing it happen live is often the first step to trusting and believing and understanding what you're doing with your money. Second application step that we would recommend for you is to rest in the reality that the, the code, the software code, cannot be easily changed. As Will mentioned, there's a process by which the miners update the code, and it's a long process, and it's extensively validated and verified. And, and the reality that this is a decentralized, distributed network of miners and nodes is designed to protect rather than to attack the individual. The more you educate yourself about how the network functions to protect and to update and validate itself, the more confidence you will have. The third application I would recommend for you is to remind yourself that Bitcoin reduces counterparty risk rather than adding to it, unless you happen to rely on exchanges to a, to a large degree. So if you embrace the concept of your keys, your coins, and you move your Bitcoin off of exchanges after you buy it, then you are reducing the risk of a counterparty going down or becoming vulnerable to the system. You are taking control of your own money, which should increase your confidence. So the application step is move your Bitcoin off of the exchange to a cold storage wallet and learn how to safely protect that wallet. Fourth, recognize that Bitcoin is built by men with the assumption of self-interest. Those who have written the Bitcoin code know that men are evil, that they are seeking to steal, deceive, and take that from others. So as 
off-putting as this can be for Christians, it's reassuring that the system accounts for sinful self-interest and incentivizes fairness and rational behavior over injustice. And the more you study the system, the more you'll see the reality that the system is built to basically punish those who would seek to steal from others and reward those who play by the rules. Fifth, think practically. Ask yourself the question, what if? Ask others these questions. What if, what if, what if about implications and the game theory that goes along with nation-state regulation? We touched on this briefly tonight, but we have by no means gone to the, the bottom of the pool in asking ourselves, what would we do if one country resisted or oppressed Bitcoin? What would we do in that scenario if we were out of that country or in that country? And how would this motivate other countries to find havens to support and, and provide for those who had been driven out of their country, either physically or financially? Uh, embrace the reality that individual freedom continues to reign with Bitcoin. And, you, and if you have the willingness to opt out of sections of your country's oversight, that may become necessary in the short or the long term. So have those conversations with your friends and your family members and know where your options are and know where your breaking point is and be ready for the opportunity, if God provides it for you, to move your freedom money out of the country if you have to. Sixth, think about the various ways that you trust the current system and its structures without verification. Are there areas where you need to question the integrity, the morality, and the security of the current banking and savings system? For example, if you needed access to your stock portfolio or your bank account in an emergency, how difficult would it be to fully liquidate that? How long would that take? Do you really own that money? Guys, any closing thoughts for our audience as we reflect on how to practically apply these steps? I think that over the last six episodes, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of, of the depth of the things that we want to talk about. And, and we're looking forward to future episodes and future seasons to continue to dive deeper into some of these ideas and topics. There's just so much to talk about. But I, I think that we keep repeating over and over again, get off zero, get started, start educating yourself. And and that can't be stated enough. So just these steps that that Simon gave you, go back and listen to it again. And and really push yourself to think. And I know this is an area that a lot of people just have not ever given much thought to. But I think the more that you push yourself to really contemplate the economic system that you've taken for granted your whole life, the more that you will come to really appreciate our loving father who has given us the ability to create a fair and open system. There is a great reset coming. You don't have to look very far or wide to, to see that, to know that. In fact, you have to live under a rock pretty much at this point in time to, to not recognize that there are changes going on. There are rumblings going on at the tectonic level of, of money throughout the world. Bitcoin is the lifeboat. The Titanic is going down. Bitcoin is the lifeboat. So get on the boat. Indeed. And we commit to you that we want to help you. And we've talked about 
trying to come up with the best list of our current resources that we would recommend to all of you to go through and carefully review. We've talked about a bunch of them and linked them in the show notes, but we'll put together a nice detailed list in the show notes for this particular episode of some of the best books, articles, and podcasts so that we can simplify your process of going through those resources and thinking for yourself and and learning to validate. And I would just return to what David talked about at the beginning of the episode. It's not wrong to trust. Children trust their parents. We as believers trust our pastor. All Christians trust in Jesus Christ. But it's also an adult behavior to validate and to learn how to validate. And so we would encourage all of you to to build that muscle, no matter how old you are and how much you have time you have spent learning about money. Now is a great time to begin that process all over again and invest in this process. As you continue to grow in your faith, as you continue to study your Bibles, and as you continue to give proper priority to God's word, don't abandon God's word and just learn about Bitcoin. Do them both at the same time, and you'll find the fruit coming to your life. As we conclude today, we want to thank you for all of your support and encouragement. We, in turn, want to encourage you to trust God, love Christ, and love your neighbor, and save in Bitcoin. <laughs>